Thomas Solomon, which is uh, essentially love poetry between a husband and wife. Uh, we've just been looking at 4, 1 to 7, where he describes her to her, talking to her, and says, how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. And he says in verse 7, you are altogether beautiful, my darling, there's no blemish in you. Isn't it nice that love is blind? But that is the way he looks to her, because he loves her, and he praises her. He's very expressive about that. And that's what we'd uh, ended on. Uh, we noticed also that that's the way the Lord looks at us, that the marriage relationship is a um, symbol, a, a shadow of, of Christ in the church. And in spite of our hideousness, the Lord looks at us as lovely and beautiful. He's made us into that. And that's amazing. You know, it really helps us to know the Lord is excited about the relationship with us uh, by his grace and because of his love. So that leads us to chapter 4, verses 8 to 15. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon. Journey down from the summit of Amana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You have made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes, with a single strand of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your oils than all kinds of spices. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride, a rock garden locked, a spring sealed up. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, henna with nard plants, nard and saffron and calamus and cinnamon with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, along with all the finest spices. You are a garden spring, a well of fresh water and streams flowing from Lebanon. Okay. So, he is inviting her to come. He calls her my bride. He uses that six times in ten verses. It's only used 28 times in the rest of the Old Testament. That's kind of another of his endearing terms for her. And he's picturing her as being on the mountains of Lebanon, in the dens of the lions, and the mountains of the leopards coming to him. Um... I don't think she's literally roaming the wilderness, living with the animals, but she's at a distance from him, and he's inviting her to come to him to a place of safety. Maybe the predatory animals represent dangers and threats in their relationship. But notice that he's appealing to her to come. He's not demanding, he's inviting. He's alert to her feelings and her fears, perhaps, as well. And he's waiting and drawing her to himself with what he says. Come, may you come with me. Come down. And uh, as he as he's inviting her to be with him, and I think that more, means more than just having lunch together, um, he is very expressive about how he feels about her. You've made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You've made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes. With a single strand of your necklace, it doesn't take much. And he's just uh, extremely uh, impressed with her, excited about being with her. Love 
doesn't hide feelings and emotions like this. You know, th- that's hard to say. I mean, it's, uh, I realize that's also a little maybe uh, not our uh, way of expressing it, but, but openly declaring our love and our feelings for someone makes us vulnerable. And so our tendency is to protect ourselves and not do that. I think it's impressive that he says just, just a single glance at your eyes. And he's just like hypnotized. You know, he's just mesmerized. And, uh, you know, just a little bit of her beauty. Just, just a strand of her necklace. It doesn't take much. I mean, just a little bit of her and he's just in rapture. And so, I mean, he's, even though we might use a little different metaphor or whatever, wow, I mean, he's really praising her. He's really declaring to her his heart. You know, she's either going to accept him or reject him. He's pretty vulnerable at this point by saying all this. Uh, but he's not uh, shy about it. Notice he calls her my sister, my bride. And I think that to call her his sister implies that they have a bond of a friendship, a personal bond, an emotional bond. This is not just... A, an overnight relationship. They, he, he loves her as a sister, not just as a bride. And, and you unite those two things in marriage. They are wonderful companions. He just, he cares about her a lot, but he also wants to be with her in a marriage relationship. He said, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride? How much better is your love than wine? And the fragrance of your oils than all kinds of spices. I mean, her love is the best thing he could ever imagine. Now, he's using similar language to what she had used, remember? Back in 1-2, your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance, and so forth and so on. So he's responding back to what she said about him, using similar language back about her. So he talks about what she looks like in verse 9, what she smells and tastes like perhaps in verse 10, what she feels like in verse 11. And there's no way you can experience her and not be desperately in love with her. That's his perspective at least. For him, well, honey and milk are under your tongue. Does that remind you of anything, honey and milk? The promised land? Yeah, she is his promised land. She's the land flowing with milk and honey. Um, you know, and, uh, he knows what's, uh, that honey and milk are under her tongue, so that particular kind of kissing must not have uh, originated in France. Um, but, you know, he's very expressive of how much he enjoys her. And again, this is certainly an indication that physical pleasure in marriage is not evil, it's not unworthy of a Christian it's not something to be kind of downplayed or, you know, thought of as being sort of not so spiritual. I mean, clearly this book is highly approving and, and, and endorsing marriage love. That's, that's totally right. That's uh, exactly the way God made us. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's very beautiful from the Lord's perspective. And uh, so he's really declaring what she means to him and how wonderful experiencing her is in any way he can experience her. And I would again encourage us to think about how Jesus looks at us, how he's willing to experience us, in spite of our deep unworthiness, 
as someone very attractive to him, as someone he loves and cares about. And, uh, you know, I've just been studying Ephesians 1, and, and we are God's inheritance. That is, he inherits us, and he's excited about getting to inherit us. It's amazing that God looks at us in such positive ways because he loves us. If you love your wife, you will look at her like this, again, like I said last week, no matter what she looks like. This is not a beauty contest before uh, objective judges. This is the way a husband who loves his wife sees his wife. It's the way God who loves us sees us. I think that's much what we need is to quit, um, you know, thinking, well, you know, she's a little more like this, you know, a little plumper here, a little skinnier there, a little this or that. No! You know, we don't think that way. She is she is the most beautiful person to us because she is the only one we love like that. There's nobody else we look at. There's nobody else we think about in those terms. They're, they're not on the radar. And so she is a perfect 10 to us. Well, that's part of what we just read. But do you have some comments or questions to verse 11? How would you reconcile this with, like, things in the law? Like, I think before they approached Mount Sinai and stuff, they weren't supposed to have gone near a woman, or even, like, the uncleanness laws, you know? Like, I believe after you had sex, like, the male was unclean or something, and it just gives it the connotation of being unholy. Okay, two things there. I mean, when you're talking about before they approached Mount Sinai, yeah, that was a special time where they were supposed to deprive themselves of lawful pleasures. That'd be kind of like uh, fasting on the Day of Atonement. Okay. You know, it's not at all that eating's a bad thing. Right. <laughs> you know, but that that day is a day where you just focus on the Lord okay. and not on enjoying other things. Now, the uncleanness. Uncleanness is not, in many, many cases, has nothing to do with something sinful or that's tainted. Okay. You know, a woman's unclean during her monthly cycle. True. There's nothing sinful about that. God made us that way. Uh, and, and so forth and so on. So yes, uncleanness often represented a physical uncleanness. Now clearly there's a lesson in that in terms of spiritual uncleanness. But it's not saying that physical uncleanness in the Old Testament was necessarily at all a spiritual issue. Sometimes it was, but many times it was not. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Good question. So would it be like how you are unclean for touching a dead body, but you are supposed to bury your dead Right, absolutely. And honor yes, them? yes. Okay. Okay. Yes, there are many kinds of uncleanness that were not at all sinful. Uh, they're just, they're, they're dirty, you know, in a sense. They're physically unclean. <coughs> Someone pointed out um, Proverbs 5 and verse 3 in connection with this section. Um, the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech and just made the point that... Um, like the lips of the bride can be just as sweet and that's a, a lawful pleasure as we were just talking about. So you can have the sweetness without the bitter aftertaste maybe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. And in, in fact, in marriage you have the closeness, you have the commitment. She's the sister, not just the bride. On the other hand, you don't have that thrill of the forbidden. 
And I think some of those things really test our heart. Are we just wanting to do what's out of bounds just so we can get the adrenaline rush of, you know, doing something that's prohibited? I think that that's the thing that attracts us. It's not that our wives, well, you take guys that, you know, struggle with pornography. Many of them have beautiful wives. has nothing to do with their wives. You know, their wife, they can have legally, lawfully. That's no fun. The fun is doing something that's unlawful. It's it's amazing. I mean, Adam and Eve could have had all those the fruit of all those trees lawfully. And it wasn't that they were hungry. It wasn't that they didn't have good variety. It's that one was prohibited. They wanted to do what was wrong. That's the exciting thing. That's our problem. So it's much better. The relationship in marriage is so much better. It's so much more commitment. It's so much closer. It's so much more you're sharing everything together. But it's not the thrill of the forbidden, and that's the appeal. Uh, Good thoughts, good comments. Well, look at verse 12, and he he moves into another concept here that I think is very helpful. He says, a garden locked is my sister, my bride. A rock garden locked, a spring sealed up. Now, I think the idea of her being a locked garden and a sealed spring is saying that she was only his. She was locked up, nobody else could come in. She was sealed up, nobody else could drink from that. Now, it may have been speaking of her virginity on her wedding night, no one else had ever come into her. But certainly, at least, it speaks of her inaccessibility to anyone except him. You know, she's only available to him. That's such an essential factor in marriage. It's an exclusive thing. There's nobody else who has any right to your wife except you. And no, and she has exclusive rights to your, your body. Um, so mm-hmm. nobody else could come trampling in and sample her fruit. And then he uses that garden imagery um, and talks about she's just an orchard of pomegranates, choice fruits, henna, nard plants, saffron, calamus, cinnamon, uh, all the trees of frankincense, myrrh, and aloes, and the finest spices. Wow, this is the Noah's Ark of the Vegetable Kingdom right here. You know, I don't think any herbalist would ever try to cultivate all those exotic plants in one garden, and she's got it all. She is every flower, every spice you could think of. Now, isn't it, it's just, I think, very tasteful how the the author deals with these things. He's able to communicate his message to mature audiences in a clear way without straying into explicit descriptions that would be inappropriate. This is a very tasteful way of dealing with very private things. You know, use the metaphor of the garden. They've been using that all the way through here. And so she's a garden with just all the fruits you could have. And, uh, you know, this is clear for mature readers, but a, a you know, eight-year-old could read this. They wouldn't have a clue what he's talking about. You know, so it's 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 <coughs> the way he's able to do that. And, and the, you know, there's a sense in which veiling these things preserves the specialness and the mystery. And so I'm inclined to talk about these things in the same in the same vein. That's what I. It seems to me like you take your cue from how the author deals with this. And so I point out the metaphors but leave it to uh, our own thinking to to understand them. Um, 
But, you know, loving her would never be boring. You know, she's just, she's just a, a, a delight in every possible way. Only the finest fruits grew in her garden. And uh, he says, you're a garden spring, a well of fresh water streams flowing from Lebanon, which would take me back to Proverbs for understanding that spring metaphor. I remember Proverbs five fifteen: drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? And so you think about, that's from his standpoint, his spreading his waters in the streets. Yours alone and for your wife, and we rejoice in the wife of your youth. But then you look at Proverbs twenty three twenty seven. You've got a similar metaphor with the woman here in a in an illicit relationship. But he says a harlot is a deep pit, and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. So you use the water images to describe the relationship that they have, and the whole idea of sexual pleasure shouldn't be diluted. It ought to be concentrated by saving it for one's partner alone. You know. This fountain that was sealed to everybody else is a, is a mountain spring in their marriage relationship. Um, and, and so, you know, again, I think about the parallel between Christ and the church. Think about the fruit of the Spirit that we are to manifest, that the Lord enjoys so much in us. It's produced by the Spirit, so that's why it's the fruit of the Spirit. But, but the Lord loves to sample our fruit and enjoy seeing us with the love, the joy, the peace, the patience and, and gentleness and meekness and so forth that you have there in Galatians chapter 5. All right, thoughts and comments through verse 15. These are very rich passages. They're very thoughtful and very well put together. I feel pretty comfortable with chapter four in terms of understanding it. I think this is this is one of the clearer chapters as far as just what he's talking about and and staying you know on a theme that for the whole chapter that we can really understand. And these next two verses are quite remarkable verses. Again, I think clear in the context, but very veiled. So four sixteen and five one. Awake, O north wind, and come, wind of the south. <clears throat> Make my garden breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad. May my beloved come to his garden, and eat his choice fruits. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and invite deeply, O lovers. Okay, so she calls to the north wind and to the south wind to arise and blow the fragrances of her garden to her husband. And she's then inviting him to come into her as his garden and eat the fruit that now is his. She belongs to him. Now, there's about as many, about every other word in this has a secondary meaning. I believe that the word awake is used in an intimate sense in this book. Come is, eating is, the garden is. <laughs> this is, the, you start looking at some of the other passages in the book that use some of those figures, you start realizing, ah, okay, you know, this is you kind of concentrating some of those terms 
in this. But so she's she's wanting the beloved, the beloved to come and enjoy the garden. So so the idea is she belongs to him. This is First Corinthians seven verses three and four. You know our body's not ours; it belongs to our mate. Um, he can pick any fruit he wants. He's he's, he's, he's he's she's inviting him to make her garden his own garden. He she wants him to enjoy the fruit that God has blessed her with in her garden. And so then, um, he says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I've drunk my wine and my milk. So he says, I have. You know, there's uh, nine eyes and mys in that verse alone. That's the highest concentration in the Old Testament. But he is accepting her garden as his. He treats her as belonging to him. You know, uh, her body is the promised land. She's a land flowing with milk and honey again. So he, that's the way he sees her. And she, it's the blessing that, that she's opened the door for him, her to come into his uh, promised land. Um, and, and of course, this is giving the Lord's recommendation to this relationship. Um, in the end of this, eat, friends, drink and imbibe deeply, O lovers. I'm not sure if that was spoken by the chorus, maybe the daughters of Jerusalem, or maybe by the Lord himself. But it's certainly putting a stamp of approval on this relationship. You know, it's against the idea that we ought to suppress physical pleasure as unworthy of God. You know, the world is, itself was created as something to be enjoyed, something good. So we don't recoil in disgust. You know, it's not a proper dichotomy to say, would it be better to pray or to be together with our mate? Both are things the Lord wants us to do and expects from us. God invented marital pleasure, not as a freestyle sport, but in its place as something that's beautiful and wonderful and fulfilling. It's what God intends. And between married people, there's not to be reserve or restraint. They're to enjoy one another in mutual love. This is there's so much mutuality in this book. He's mine and I'm hers. You know, it's it's just this uh, uh, you know closeness uh, joined together. So God put the lawful and the intimate together. God intends for there to be the brideness, the sisterness, and the wifeness all in one package. Now think about taking some some kind of sticky tape and sticking it onto something, and then unsticking it, sticking it onto something else, and then unsticking it, sticking it onto something else, and then unsticking it. What ends up happening with that tape? It loses its ability to stick to anything, to bond properly to anything. Isn't that exactly what happens when people join one partner? Then they leave that and join another. They leave that and join another. They soon become numb. There's no stickiness left. They lose their ability to have a proper relationship. Hello? Uh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, we don't want this garden trampled flat till it becomes as hard and cold as the parking lot. 
You know, the garden <coughs> remains alive when it's treated properly. But you do this sticking and unsticking business, and it's not a good thing. And, uh, you know, I would say also, you see this in the beautiful way that it is, as opposed to this, you know, really, you know, degrading thing of fantasizing about images on a screen that are just about as fake as a shop window mannequin. You know, there's no, there's no fulfillment, there's no anything. We're in this, you know, mindset of, of just almost, you know, experiencing a, a pleasure designed for my mate in just a selfish, uh, self-centered way, just for the excitement of the high or to try to fill a void in our life or whatever. It's not the same thing. It's not the way God planned that. You know, trying to achieve some sense of intimacy or power just to numb the pain of our loneliness or our failure or emptiness <laughs> is not going to help. When we use God's holy things in unholy ways, it won't work. And God gave our bodies for a very specific reason that they would leave, cleave, and become one flesh. And that's, that's what it needs to be. And, and, you know, all these restrictions that God puts on our bodies are for our own blessing. When we don't do it that way, it's just not, it, it hurts us. It degrades us. It warps the beautiful thing God gave us. Now again, I think we can think about a spiritual application. Think about the song, I am thine, O Lord. I've heard thy voice. I want to be closer drawn to you. Uh, Jesus endure, uh, Jesus loved his bride enough to leave heaven, come to earth, endure the torture and shame of the cross to, to win us. You see the closeness he wants to have with us. And, and so the marriage relationship reminds us of the close relationship we have with the Lord. So that, I think that's a very uh, significant two verses. By the way, I believe this is the middle verse. Yeah, 5-1 is the exact center. There are 111 lines before 5-1 and 111 lines after 5-1. So 5-1 is just appropriate. It's kind of the... Uh, enjoy, it's the, the most, uh, explicit verse of their being together, uh, as, as husband and wife. Thoughts and comments.